episode of Rally Bikes Radio on the 15th of January 2015. Uh, delighted to have our regular guest, Alan Watt, on the line. You there, Alan? Yes, I'm here. Okay, uh, you've mentioned many times about how populations are stampeded. Now, everybody imagines a stampede. They've seen the, the wildlife movies where the, the wildebeest being chased by the lions, or they've seen uh, riots or something where people are crushed or, or whatever. Um, but the, the stampede you're talking about is more a, a mental stampede, uh, from what I understand. And uh, this this kind of um, technique, if you like, has been used for a long, long time. And do, do you want to do you have any kind of um, insight into where this kind of technique stems from? What, what's the, the psychology behind it? It's ancient, actually. Uh, if you go back into uh, ancient times when people lived in tribes. Uh, they, they had uh, it's a natural thing in tribes to have uh, a leader or an elected leader uh, and the tribesman the, the chieftain generally has no more than the rest of the people is given respect and uh, after he's done his year two years or whatever um, someone else takes over with the consent of the whole tribe that's how it used to be pretty well across the world uh, but with the rise um, of, of uh, commerce the early commerce uh, there were again the, the the psychopathic types, you might say, who could who could see how they could aggrandize themselves and benefit themselves if they only had rulership over the people, uh, and and become hereditary. Basically, this is a shortcut to it. Uh, if they could have their offspring take over, etc., etc., and you find the earliest signs of this again across the the Middle East and in Asia, uh, where, where commerce came in. Uh, with eventually, um, and out of wherever, who knows, they decided on a, a standard of uh, um, money. Money's the key to all of this. Uh, money takes you off of a natural system of, say, uh, a, collective, a collective survival and uh, hunter-gatherers or even early agriculture and barter. It takes you from that to the middleman. The middleman then has the power, and, and the middleman will always accumulate wealth so if the middleman can also eventually uh, manage this introduction of uh, uh, something to exchange, which is called money, whether it's weighed or whatever, or, or minted, and have the people accept it, uh, then he can eventually take over and decide the value of that currency. Uh, that's been ongoing for thousands of years. And across that particular area, that's where they understood this in early, early times. From then on through the Phoenicians, um, which also was related to the, all, uh, the groups in the Middle East, they traveled the world again through trade and they, they tried to introduce their coinage everywhere too. Initially, they would do, do straight barter with folk they'd meet in different shores and islands. And eventually, they'd, they'd say, No, we don't want, to, we want you to give us this stuff. You start using this stuff. But to get this coin, you'll have to give us X amount of fur or, or grain or whatever it happens to be. And that's what they did. That's what the ancient, uh, a lot of the ancient uh, wars were about. Was the, the the when they took over a country eventually, and got a hierarchy in that country, like a king established, instead of a chief, you, you create a hereditary king with a family. Then his he, he's out for his own self benefit, and uh, and his families too. It, to live better than the rest of the people, you must live off of the people. I don't care how, you, how else it's done. That's sim as simple as that. And um, so they worked with the, the middlemen, the money managers, and so on. They had to work always done through time together. 
and create these 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 long uh, family lineages and so on. But in the early times, to see with the Phoenicians, you had the Hundred Year Wars with even the Spartans, etc., as they took over Ireland, after Ireland, and used the countries that were indebted to these money men, uh, come merchants. Um, they'd use that money uh, and the debt that was owed them to force the, the, the kings they'd, they'd helped to establish to use their people, their armies, to conquer the next country that would then uh, force the money system upon them. And that, that took well over 100 years, you know. And once they, they got the coinage and the early coinage of silver, about 800 BC, then uh, the, the, um, they realized that, that uh, uh, they'd have to force that currency across the world, which they did. In ancient times, they found these coins, by the way, across the world, even on the east coast of, of early America. So uh, this, this world's been well-traveled many, many thousands of years ago, long before Columbus. Uh, but anyway, the idea was, once, how do you rule all these people? Once you, once you get them into an artificial system, it's easier to rule them because they'll, they'll then believe that they, they will lose their ability to even have self-preservation and survival. Uh, an artificial money system, or any money system, uh, brings a new system of living in an artificial system. Uh, if you create a city, for instance, and all the kings wanted cities, uh, then everything in that city is an artificial system. It's, they're, they're not hunting, they're not gathering, they're, they're using, they need money to, to bring, bring in all their foodstuffs. They've got to get an army, so they need money to pay the army, etc., etc., and, and, and so on. So this whole thing is a, is a perpetual self-motion machine. It keeps going and going and going once you've got it established. Even Plato talked about how cities eventually would dominate the world, these city-states. And they could, they could change the culture within those city walls all the time because they still have workers inside the city working, working now for money uh, in artificial systems. As we are today, all sitting in offices and things, and people are working on computers and they hate their jobs, but it's completely artificial. It's unnatural for the human being to do. But we, we're taught down through centuries that this is all quite normal, uh, and we accept it. Now, those with the money system and those who, who, who understand how it works... Uh, use that as a big clout on the general public to keep them in line. Because the more you abuse a person or a whole population, uh, you keep them fearful. Um, and you've taught and trained them that this is all quite normal, this system. Then when something is threatened, oh, a financial crash or devaluation of your currency and poverty, then the people and the various groups that represent the people stand up and say, oh, do something to the very guys who are abusing you. And this is the system they've used all along, is fear, fear, fear. So the more they abuse you, the more the people are trained that you really need them and the experts. And the experts, as, you, as you're well aware, how, how come things never get any better? Uh, we always have, they always, the bankers always plunder us, this combination of bankers, plunder the public at least twice a century, every century, at least twice, sometimes three times a century. Uh, we bail them out. There's, there's nothing new in this at all. This has been going on for a long, long, long time. And because they also run what's called the establishment, the whole system of normalcy at the top, the law system, everything, then nothing is ever done to really change because they want to do it again and again and again. But with the money system and with this commerce thing, you have powerful elite groups uh, and and the money system all combined together, completely interwoven. They also use those armies to go and plunder other countries under thousands of guises. And if you want, if you've got like the New American Century project that we knew about in the 90s, 
where they had all the countries wanted scheduled for the U.S. wanted scheduled to be taken out, starting with Afghanistan. They, they, I mean, they published it on their own website with Paul Wolfowitz and all the rest of them. Uh, Afghanistan, then Iraq, uh, then they wanted Syria. And Israel, too, wanted, wanted the U.S. Army to go straight from Iraq into Syria and take Syria out, out at the same time, then Libya, and, and, uh, and then Iran. And they've, they've accomplished almost all of those goals, and they're still underway to accomplishing the last parts of it. Published years before uh, 2001. Uh, I think Venezuela and North Korea were on that as well. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, long ago, North Korea was too. Mm-hmm. But you, you understand too that you're trained to think of yourself as a nation. Every country is, and you're taught to be proud of your nation, etc., uh, etc. Et and that's the first lie you're taught. Because the bankers who might live in your country, some of them, uh, also tell the top politicians, in fact, they make sure they get them in, their, their boys get in, uh, and they have their plans, this ongoing world domination thing of taking over the whole world and getting it on one currency system down the road. Uh, and in the process, they also want to incredibly enrich themselves. It's never, uh, they can't satiate their hunger for, for power, these people. Uh, they don't say, well, I've, I've earned uh, $15 trillion this year worldwide, so uh, I've got enough. It doesn't work that way. Power is an aberration. This kind of power is an aberration. But unfortunately, in this system, it's the normal aberration. So much so that those down below, all the working slobs, are taught to try and emulate it too. So they give you that kind of culture, a psychopathic type spillover culture that trickles down and becomes your culture with the nonsense that anyone can make it, etc. But uh, when, they, when they look at other countries, like I say, like, and drop their plans for war for the future, and they mean it. They don't draw them up at these big think tanks just to toss ideas around. Then they've got to get a valid excuse, seemingly to the public, to go and invade those countries. But they don't call it invasion. They always call it going to liberate them or, or spreading democracy. Uh, the ancient Romans said the same thing. They were going spreading culture everywhere. They were civilizing the people. And, of course, we saw that after 9-11, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. That they actually they, uh, they use the same terms. They were bringing them democracy into nations where this was a foreign concept. And we forget ourselves that, that 100 odd years ago, democracy, say in Europe and Britain, was also a foreign concept. You didn't have what you think of democracy today back then. They may have called it a democratic government, but it simply meant, in fact, 100 years ago in Britain, uh, you had to own land to go and vote in so many houses, etc. Tenants uh, it, it couldn't vote up until World War One. Inside World War One, that's where they gave them the vote. By the way, the folk who were landless. So democracy's ter- understanding keeps changing as they push the con and keep pushing the con. Even Winston Churchill wrote uh, in the early 1900s this strange concept of democracy that certain elements coming into Britain uh, were trying to push. And at that time, they had uh, different covers. One of the covers was Marxism. So what you've got is the pretense of democracy. You've got this terrible indoctrination of the population, more so, I think, in the U.S., of a classless society, which is an absolute laughing joke, you know. It's completely laughable. But if if you train the public like that, you can always get them to join up in in hordes and go off and fight for, for any excuse you give them. And when you often fight, what you do is accomplish your missions, which is you take over the lands, 
uh, just like Britain did with its empire. Uh, the public pay for the armies to go off, the shipping off of armies and all the, the munitions, everything else that goes with it, logistics. And you put down railroad lines, you put in airstrips today, things like that. We pay for it all. And then private contracts are given to the boys that want to get the mining out, the diamonds, the gold, the oil, all these kind of things. It's, it's private enterprise that rules it all. And we pay for it all under the skies of democracy, spreading freedom and spreading democracy and all that nonsense. It's, uh, you have to retrain your mind to actually believe what it's actually seeing instead of being told what to perceive and what you're seeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna, you mentioned uh, fear earlier on, and we, we did a programme on that uh, a while ago. But uh, war certainly is uh, the big uh, tool to stampede people in, in many different ways. And the, the most obvious, I suppose, is uh, refugees. And, and that, again, brings its own problems for, for neighbouring countries, or not necessarily neighbouring countries, but uh, in the form of uh, mass immigration to, to countries which, again, are alien to their own culture. Yes, it's called geopolitics again. That's what they call it at the top. Where they, they, we tend to, to be short-term thinkers. Most folk are short-term thinkers. Women are more long-term thinkers than men. Uh, men can understand small projects that wouldn't be done immediately and they'll go to it and get it done. Women can actually plan ahead, even years in advance. Um, but at the top, uh, since we've been so well studied, they've used a combination of both techniques at the top through the intelligence services, the big agencies that run all the other agencies, etc., etc., uh, the RAND Corporation, many corporations involve big think tanks on constantly studying humanity. And now with the internet, they can keep the pulse on the public and see what's working, what's not working in propaganda uh, technique. So what you've got um, is the, the ability to, to say, okay, well, we'll start off here like a chessboard. Here's where we want to go. But in the meantime, we'll make these moves, these moves, these moves, and these moves, and these moves. And, um, uh, and eventually we'll get to our goal uh, at the end. It's an ongoing game. I call it the never-ending story because it's, it's meant to go on and on and on, like George Orwell said in 1984. So we see the immediate, all the propaganda is for, always for immediacy. You've got to attack Iraq. Now, even in Canada... They were doing studies in Canada and different psychological associations, universities, and they noticed how the media that started off bashing Afghanistan initially for 9-11 and Ben Laden and so on, uh, quietly over the course of a year, once they were in Afghanistan, uh, started to focus and try to, almost in a subliminal way until it was overt, uh, get the public used to the idea that uh, Saddam Hussein was involved in it. And even though during that period when the inquiry was, came up and, and Bush Jr. said, well, Iraq had nothing to do with it. Uh, it says he's, he's, Saddam's just a bad man. He's better out of the way. Um, that was good enough. But the fact is, uh, the, the American public had been trained. It was, Saddam was the ultimate bad guy for a while. Uh, and so you had the schizophrenic attitude. No, it was Ben Laden. That got the war started. And then they shifted the, the gun sights to, to Iraq and blamed uh, uh, Saddam uh, Hussein. So within, I saw it took in the media, constant subliminals, and then into overt blaming uh, until the, the public in America accepted having to evade Iraq, you see. Uh, these are geo, that's how you do geopolitics. And then, of course, in, after the, the end of uh, Iraq, when they were through there, Israel came out in the newspapers and, and television and said, well, and they told the U.S., go, go straight now into Syria. 
All, all their enemies, they want to be, ta- to be taken out too, you see. And why do it yourself when somebody else is going to do it for you and pay for it all too? So um, uh, it almost came to that. Instead, it didn't work. And they had to spend a, a few years and then work, work up this Al-Qaeda nonsense that was all funded by the West to invade Syria, which is still ongoing today. And now they keep changing the names to confuse the public who catch on to what's going on. But it's the same group, totally funded by the West. And that's how you do geopolitics. And then eventually they'll, they'll only have, if you get Syria out of the way, they've only got uh, um, uh, Iran to do. And then they have all the oil fields, all the minerals, all the aquifers, the water and so on. Uh, it's just incredible the wealth they're given to private companies who didn't put a penny forward and, 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 um, to get this war going. They, they get all the rewards. But that's how the British Empire was actually built. It's never changed. And we, we tend to think again, stop thinking in countries like, oh, the Rothschilds live in, in, in London. No, no, the, the Rothschilds lived in, in, in the U.S. and London and other places, two different branches of the family. And they'll use whatever country is handy at the time to get their geopolitical strategy through, including funding the United Nations, funding the, the World Bank and all the rest of it through the CFR and the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which they set up and, and, and owned. They were the guys who financed uh, Alfred Milner and, and guys like that. They set up the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the private organization that literally drafted up uh, the United Nations uh, a, a treaty and everything else. Uh, they drafted up the European Union amalgamation. They drafted up the North American NAFTA uh, agreement too. They came on television. Their branch here in Canada, the CFR, admitted on television and on a sh- an hour-long show, news show, CBC, that they, they drafted it up and gave it to them all. They signed the three amigos to sign in law, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. A private organization that most folk haven't heard of. Uh, you can't just join it because you have to be asked to go and join the thing. And after you've been well vetted, I mean, they've studied you for years if they bring you in. And, and the public have no vote in anything that's going on here, including the CFR. Why, is it, why are private organizations running the whole world's commerce, money, and everything else today while we go through this farce that we're democratic? But, 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 I, I can't even use the word democracy anymore. It's a complete. It's, it's a. It's not even a dead joke now. It's, it's, it's deep. It's disintegrated way under the earth. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned it, the CFR and people being stampeded. And I, I just think of uh, Jerry Adams uh, was invited to talk there, so I mean he's part of that group as well. And uh, yeah. of course he, he's touted as this uh, great Republican uh, leader, and now he's in mainstream politics and everything. Uh, I wonder who he was working for, eh? <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. I, I always, I always knew that with him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and McGuinness. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I mean the, the effects on on the general public, uh, obviously through the media, through the, the news, the news, uh, the television. Sorry, um, think of it like nine eleven, all, all these disasters, seven seven uh, tsunamis, uh, where it's it's on the TV like constantly. Uh, in particular, the uh, what's happening now with this Paris thing, how that's been blown out of all proportion uh, in terms of. You know the small event that it was. Uh, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, simplifying the fact that uh, people were killed or anything, but you know, it, it's a, a fairly minor uh, tragedy, if I can put it that way, compared to some of the horrors that uh, Israel's inflicted in Palestine, for example, or uh, the one a few weeks ago where the Afghan army um, 
mislaid a rocket and fired it into a wedding party and killed 40 people. We don't, we don't hear uh, world leaders on the street about that. You know, but uh, this, this thing, this thing is, is, is playing on the public psyche uh, and mm-hmm. basically stamping them down the road to a more, to a more police state and to accept a harsher police state. Well, there's no doubt about it. Uh, to introduce anything which takes away freedoms and rights from the people, again, it's ancient. You must terrify the people that you're all going to get killed or massacred in your beds by these nasty people. And, um, uh, and, and so if they don't create the incident themselves, which is a very common thing in, in, in history, through history, uh, if they don't create it themselves, then they'll certainly aid and abet it happening uh, to, to some little group. They'll, they'll, give, they'll finance them. To help them get to their target, in order to use the whole the, the event to, uh, you see, it, it, there's a lot of strategies to do with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and um, it was fantastic to see how how the psychology worked, and the Soviet intelligence and MI5 and six, because they were both the same, and the idea on the Marxian side or Soviet side was, going to countries that are third world or 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 they're, or they're sinking first world countries. Uh, where there's lots of unemployment, agitate the people, but don't help the people. Attack all charities, because charities give aid out to the people which alleviate their misery. We don't want their misery alleviated. Make it worse. And then they'll get really angry. The whole point was to get people really angry and uprise and overthrow. And then the group that was behind it all would jump in, just like the, the Bolsheviks jumped over all the socialist groups and became the leaders of Russia, you see. They, they, they used them all to get the leadership as a strategy. And... Um, and what the Soviets also said was, if we can get them agitated until the West, the so-called fascist countries, responded uh, in an overt, heavy-handed manner by, by taking away all the rights of the people, we can then point and say, see, we told you so, that's what's really running your country, these monsters and, and, and power-mad, crazy people, you know. And, and, and then they'd revolt again. So uh, this, this was the psychology of getting, using the masses of people to, to, to do your bidding for you, even down to making their misery worse to make sure they'd revolt. In the West, it was different. The West uh, got into psychological warfare and cultural warfare, very important. Both countries did it. And um, under the cultural system, uh, they hired people... Uh, who were running the entertainment business in the U.S. primarily, some in Britain too, which is a, a, an in-group clique, you might say. Uh, and they, they made them ambassadors for culture for the West and, and across the European countries, and even going into the Soviet Union with certain shows and so on. And, um, and what their idea was to, this is what they told uh, people in their intelligence reports, the idea, and the CIA ran it from the U.S., um, and it was called American Cultural Cold War, you know. And the idea was to show how liberated uh, so-called democracy in the West was when it came to ideas and freedoms. So they pushed nudity, they pushed all these things. So you see, we, are, we don't have these barriers that you have there. You're inhibited in, in Soviet system, etc. And, and that the idea was to make the, the ones in the West and, and the Soviet system, the youth especially, try and emulate things like the, the, the pop music, then the rock music, etc., uh, and then the miniskirts and so on. And so the Soviet Union actually adopted uh, that technique, uh, the early music television uh, series. They put their own version on in the Soviet Union, not as, not as raunchy, but uh, getting there, you might say, 
to, uh, because then they have to keep their people happy. Massive cultural wars go on like that as, as, as outside forces change your culture internally. So there's a lot more involved in intelligence work and long-term strategy and geopolitics that, than just the immediate thing that you see in the paper today. When you get back to the immigration policies you're talking about for refugees, they're, they're well aware um, uh, that uh, they would bring problems into their country. Uh, the home country Britain for instance in the 70s they opened the floodgate under an agreement by the way from the 1930s in the Royal Institute of International Affairs that was all the British Commonwealth countries that eventually uh, they would bring in uh, they'd open the borders up from people from India especially that was one of their biggest prizes was India and uh, and they would bring uh, straight immigration right into Britain and in the 70s they brought them in en masse just flooding in and that was to deculturalize the people at home. That was part of the reason. But down the road, they knew. Down the road, they knew in the 70s. Because I knew in the strategies, if they ever end up attacking those countries in the future, their homelands abroad, to grab whatever wealth there is that they want, uh, I said, there's going to be riots here. Because you've got ready-made people who are, who are different. They're different from, say, Northern Hemisphere people. It's a completely different uh, ethnology involved in it in anthropology. Uh, they're in groups, big families, all connected, and so on. And so on. Uh, that's a different system than, than the northern folk and how they developed. And they all keep their culture for generations uh, that they brought over from their homeland, as opposed to the one they adapt. Or they might not even adapt into yours. You have a, a kind of pretense to an extent. But down the road, if they've ever attacked, say, Muslim countries, uh, then they could be guaranteed to have a, a population at home of Muslims that would then riot at home. Then you can push forth laws that would affect everyone, say in Britain, even people who, who have their genes go back for thousands of years in that, that area. So we saw the same thing in the US as well with 9 11. Yeah, we talked about the movies, we just that scenario. But here's the thing, though. Back back in the back in the early eighties, uh, there was an attempt. Uh, um, something happened in, in, in London, in England. Uh, there was a, a few terrorists took over. I think it was a British Petroleum uh, Tower building in London. And that eventually got publicized widely when you brought the SAS. Nobody had seen the SAS operating in their own country before. And they were upsealing down the lines, all dressed in black, and they smashed through windows and so on to rescue the hostages. And at the time, they, they, they said it was Iranian uh, terrorists that were involved. Uh, and even the SAS admitted they were supposed to kill every terrorist in there. They didn't want anyone to stay alive to see why they had come or who sent them or anything else, you know. They didn't want to get out to the press. The same thing's happened in Paris. That's right. Well, the thing is, well, well, the thing is, well, too, though, after that, 
uh, the, 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 the Iranian embassy had to move back to Iran. Now, we're forgetting, too, this was all to, in that era where Britain had been heavily involved in running Iran and getting it all out for years and years and years, and they put the Shah in and all the rest of it. And that the Iranians were not happy with all this stuff, all their money getting taken out of their country, etc. Even their, even their top people getting put in power by outsiders. So this is, this is during that whole phase. Now, it, the Cold War was still going on as well. And so they didn't want a, a ruckus. Even when a policewoman, they, they, they broadcast that, she was out directing traffic outside the embassy while the Iranian staff were told to leave. And for some reason, one of the Iranians opened fire with a, a, an automatic um, pistol, machine pistol. And uh, I shot this, this policewoman. Now, now there's always there's a lot of oh that's terrible, oh what a shame, and so and the new media. But there was no call for say martial law techniques, or everybody must be monitored now, or or the domestic population of Britain must give up all the rights, because the Cold War was still going on. The, Russia would have used that. Now they don't have that anymore, and it's out in, out in the open where they always wanted to go. So if they don't actually create uh, the incidents to create more and more martial law technique and total surveillance, etc., um, then they certainly aid the groups uh, that they know uh, want to do these things. They certainly aid them financially and with weapons and all the rest of it. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah and uh, again, uh, you know, we're, we're getting it constantly. Well, I don't watch TV, but on TV and in the media, it's constantly, you know, front-page news. Any time there's any slight incident uh, involving... You know, in inverted commas, terrorism. Uh, there's always there's always a, a cobra meeting, or you know, so, somebody's having a, a special meeting to discuss uh, how they can prevent it in the future. And uh, yeah. it's as you say, uh, 20 years ago, whenever that uh, the Iranian embassy siege was, uh, well, longer than that wasn't it? maybe 30 years ago. Um, you know, there was none of this. There was no there was no calls for you know shutting down London or you know patting everybody down at the train stations or, or whatever. But, um, but these uh, Oyster card things that people have got in London that track you every, everywhere you go, on the bus, on the train, uh, you have to go through barriers with them. Uh, I don't think we're too far away in London from certainly seeing barriers at the end of the street where you've got to go through yeah. these things. And uh, that, that's obviously what they're for. I mean, they're a form of yeah. ID card, basically. Well, the oldest idea was always, always to, if, if you're in safe, we're going to keep you safe, but you can have no rights. You can't have both one without the other. It's as simple as that. That's what they tell you. And back in the 90s, um, the late 90s in Canada, for instance, I knew something was, was coming up. Uh, the big plans, I knew about the American Century Project and their own website, I say, was up there. They published it twice with their whole agenda. I think 93, then 97, they republished it. Uh, and I, th- I thought, well, how are they going to get the world from this supposed uh, flaccid era of peace to to all of this and take these countries over with a, a blowback? And of course, uh, in 98, I think it was, 19, 1998, the Attorney General for, for Canada, a guy who was always appointed into jobs, Alan Rock, his name was, suddenly put out an omnibus crime bill, which, which when analysed, and, and the reporter said this too, this is a completely anti-terrorist and, and martial law type bill. And 19, nothing was, seemed to be happening to the general public. We were lulled to sleep and all the rest of it and kept entertained. And then as soon as that was signed and put in through, he went off to work at the United Nations, right, right off the bat immediately. And But it, it was never explained to anybody, including the journalists, why this kind of martial law thing was coming out and, and definite detention, etc. Well, see, the plans were already made. All the intelligence services knew, here's the agenda, the, 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 the New American Century Project. 
here's the wars we're going to have in, in two or three years. Um, here's the blowback you get. Blowback is when you create radicals, because if folks start bombing your country and you see your family's constantly bombed up over 10, 20 years, uh, the youngsters growing up are going to be incredibly radicalized and full of hate. That's natural in all wars, especially extended wars. And, um, and so blowback is when uh, that, that will create the enemy that you, you didn't have in the first place. I mean, really, if none of this had happened and you didn't have the New American Century Project and you didn't have this constant uh, uh, power grabs of oil and, and wealth from, say, Africa, uh, diamonds, gold, and all the rest of it, and all the minerals, and yada, 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 and the oil across the Middle East. If you didn't have all that problem going on with, with private wars going on, commercial wars, you, you wouldn't have had this physical war. That's, that's just basically it. So it was all planned. They knew the blowback they'd get. They knew they'd come down to martial law after 2001. It was all set to go in the books already. Uh, and, and then even even all the plans and the think tanks had 10 years to work on the plans before 9-11. 10 years to think on ways, okay, what, when this happens, how can we, we, we gradually get the folk to accept being monitored everything and everything they do, where they go and so on, step by step by step. And then they talked about different events they would need to introduce each part of it to the public to get them to accept it. If you do it too suddenly all at once, this blowback from your own people, your internal people. But if you do it step by step by step and bring all the experts and really hype it up, then the public will, will adapt and adapt to each step until they're getting x-rayed at airports and everything else. And uh, it worked pretty, pretty smoothly in, in actual fact, right up to the present time. And now, um, as I say, uh, an incident that, that um, uh, why should the whole, see, the, the Soviets called this technique collective punishment. If they wanted their own people to be, see, um, if they had wanted them disarmed, if they had wanted them disarmed internally in, in the Russia, uh, and so they would get someone who went crazy with a, with a, a rifle, and then they, they, they'd ban it for the whole population. That was called collective punishment. And it's a technique that the West has, has been using since, uh, actually since before, but after, definitely after 9-11. Uh, and really, really hype up the story until it seems to be everywhere. They do constant uh, ongoing psychological evaluations of the populations. Uh, back in um, the 90s, I think it was called um, the year of the gun was a big topic because there was gangs, Jamaican gangs, Trinidadian gangs and so on, all fighting each other in Toronto for drug uh, territory. And um, and we're all shooting each other. It was, it was Halliday went by in the paper, he didn't hear about something until the public got used to it again. But, but after that year, they did surveys on all the populations of Toronto. And after one incident where a white girl was shot, it was, it was great publicity for them. She was shot by a, a Jamaican who was an illegal immigrant who had been caught three or four times and, and revolving door justice and put back on the streets. Like They wanted this guy to do something eventually and did. So he shot this white girl who was out, uh, she was engaged, she would get married that next week or something. Beautiful story for the, for, the, for the papers, the media, and to get outrage going amongst the people. And then the anti-gun campaign got kicked on the act trying to say, well, we've got to ban all guns for all, from all people, including all hunting guns and so on and so on and so on. That was used. One, one person was killed, therefore let's ban all hunters, etc., and register all hunting rifles, etc. So that's, that's how they, they work all this thing. But they did a survey in the population, and because they hyped that same story for months, uh, they found that the average person in Toronto, just from that one repetitive newscast and theme, were terrified to go out at night. 
even though the chances of anything happening to them were the same as it always been, one in millions, you know. Uh, the, the, the psychological impact of creating fear uh, and trepidation of just walking outside your door had massively increased. Uh, and that's what they can do with the, the media, the, the way it's psychologically presented to the public and introduced to the public, and then the repetition to the public. You can, you can actually get them to adapt to, to any fallacy that you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've discussed it on your, your own broadcast before and called it uh, learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically where, where people are, are so afraid of uh, doing anything that uh, they feel helpless uh, about anything, even even managing their own uh, affairs at home. Or their own personal lives. It, it creates apathy. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. I mean, apathy. I mean, we're, we're well aware of how apathetic people have become and uh, whether it's uh, a combination of, of uh, what you're just talking about there and the, the fluoride and all the rest of it, uh, people have certainly, um, I'd say, given up hope. And I can't imagine uh, being a young person these days and looking at the world and thinking I've got a great future ahead of me. I know. You know, and uh, you know, you drive along the road and you see all the, the school children coming out of school, and you you you, but you look at them, and you, you wonder what kind of future they're going to have. But then then again, they've been kind of stampeded down the road of technology, and they've become yeah. uh, almost addicted to it. Or obviously, they are addicted to it. And I spoke I spoke about this to um, Martin Franz and uh, somebody else the other day there about it, and. Uh, you know, this is this is the big comfort now. This is all they've got to look forward to to is um, basically playing games for the rest of their lives, because there's going, there's going to be nothing for them to do. Yeah, that's that's of any consequence anyway. Um, I don't see any jobs for them or or any kind of long term career they can go into, um, which hasn't been kind of I don't know how to describe it. Um, infiltrated by this the system if you like I mean not even not even doctors are having to go to surgeries anymore you can phone up on Skype apparently and get a diagnosis uh, every, everything's been taken down to the, the basis level well, they, they did uh, studies on the future back in the days of H.G. Wells and and his heyday when uh, the big Fabian socialist society that was just a branch to run the, the left wing uh, a branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs dash CFR um, uh, they did lots of studies on the population about cr- the creation of apathy, what we're talking about here. And what would happen if eventually you got to a, a, a generation where they'd say, well, there's too many of you, we don't need you anymore in a post-industrial society. This was all discussed way before World War One and Two, you know. And, um, and, then, and then ongoing discussions for all, right to the present. If they got a population to accept apathy and being ruled by experts, that was the whole push for the Fabian Socialists, run by, ruled by experts and social workers and, and uh, advisors and uh, experts of all kinds your whole life. And monitored your whole life too. Uh, make it so unpleasant and give life less value. So you, so you must decul- me, devalue life itself, which they've done awfully, an awful good job at. And then you bring in voluntary euthanasia for the desperately ill and terminal. And then you simply up it like Holland there into, well, if you're depressed, why not kill yourself, you know, blah, blah. And now they're even allowing teenagers to make that choice now. So this, this was all discussed. We were just living through a script right now. That's what we're living through, a script. And every facet of, of society has been catered to in the script Ongoing studies and updates on how to manipulate each each group and um, and gender and everything else and age group 
And uh, they're pretty well getting to that point there. If they make, make life so, look at all the sci-fis they put out there about end-time catastrophes and everybody living in rubble except the small elite. Uh, at the end of those movies, you say, oh, blah, everyone's so blah. And that's, that's an idea of where they'd like to bring your mental state into the state of every day is the same and apathy, it's, it's apathy, 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 yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, the techniques they use, uh, do they... Do the exact same techniques work in every culture, or do they have to kind of um, doctor it a little to to push certain, uh, I'll call them races or cultures in, in a certain way, because the, the culture doesn't allow them to be kind of so easily um, talked into doing certain things? Yeah. Yeah. What, what they did actually in earlier writings, in fact, it's interesting to see the earlier writings, because about around 1900, the big organizations that formed, say, the Alfred Milner Group, and uh, who, who his group joined with the Cecil Rhodes group, which is Rothschild's group too, uh, and they merged together into the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But they did studies on, on, on that kind of future. And what they'd found already, by, by, I mean, Britain, remember, was into India and Africa and all across the globe, dealing with other cultures to dominate them under the pretense, again, of all oh, bringing civilization to them in order, etc. And uh, as they looted the countries. But... Uh, what they found was, if they, if they could, the easiest thing to do, they said, was to look at the gender. What works with a woman in one country will work with a woman in any country. So don't just look at them as a group of people. Look, start looking at, okay, gender and age groups, etc. But they also said the same thing that, that Marx said before that, and Lenin said afterwards, uh, and even Matsi Chung said for China, uh, what they said was... Uh, the only thing that could defeat this technique of gradualistic change, planned change for domination, was, was uh, a religion. We forget that religion was, was, was an embodiment of the whole culture of the people. If you look at the Muslim people, that is, the religion is their culture. You can't separate the two. It's their way of life, it keeps their order and everything else going amongst them and so on. And you can't separate it. In the West, they've already destroyed most of the religion. And uh, already, the new religion is the state, as you know, because that, this is just what they said. When, when, the, when the religion in the West dies down, dies off gradually, the state will already be accepted as the new, uh, and science and, and the experts accepted as the new bosses, basically. That's harder to do in, say, Muslim countries because the culture is the religion. This idea of democracy is a, a an alien concept to to them, so um, they have to use they have to they have to alter what they're trying to do in, in, across the world is use uh, go for the very young. That's what the United Nations and UNESCO is all about. Get to the very young across the world. Try and Westernize them through things that the young are, are really hyper about, like sex. When their hormones are kicking in and they're young, that's all they're thinking about. So start showing them stuff they've never seen in their own country. Make sure they all have cell phones, etc. Make sure they can, they can all watch music, television, or, or, or movies, and give them lots and lots of sex. And, and, and they'll turn against their parents. They'll, say they'll be different from their parents. That's what they hope for. And to an extent, it will work with some, but not perhaps all, in a, in a, a culture which is very bonded together with a religion, which is their culture, as I say. And for them, it's worked for thousands of years, fine. So, 
they have to tweak it and tweak it and tweak it. The other way is to bribe leaders and try to take over that way. Straightforward bribes, just like how Britain set up Saudi Arabia. For folk who don't know that, Britain set it up. London did, I should say. And uh, Philby was involved in that too, by the way, the, the, the double agent. But um, they set it up. And uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, they, they made sure that those guys at the top, the Saudis, the princes and so on, would, would be awfully rich, and, and though they would have dynasties, and when dynasties form, unfortunately, they, they, they start to lose their identity with the general public, uh, and they become an elite group, and then uh, they're, they're your man, basically, for life, as long as you make sure they're safe as well. They'll play ball with you. So if you can't, they try and bribe you outrightly. If they can't bribe you, they'll, they'll try and have a coup, as the CIA's and Troy's were doing, uh, and simply eliminate you, you know, and replace you. So... That's the real world we're talking about. This is the real world. Yeah, I mean, we talk, we talk about um, dynasties. I mean, it's, it's not just in, in those types of countries that those exist. I mean, in Ireland, uh, particularly in, in my experience, uh, you've, you've got families there who've been in politics for, for centuries. Yeah. And they're still there. The, the sons take over the seat and uh, that's it. And the, and the mm-hmm. same in Britain. To a, well, I, I don't know if it's to a lesser extent, but a less obvious extent maybe in Britain. But, I mean, in Ireland, it's, it's in your face. that uh, It's just families running the country. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, the the parochialism there is is incredible. You know, people will. It doesn't matter what they do to you over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the people will vote for you. Um, you know, and, and they. I, I don't know if it's something in the, the Irish psyche or whatever. They just think, oh well, fair play to me, got away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and that that again is a, is a corruption of society in itself, and that uh, it breeds uh, that kind of corruption at lower levels. It, it does. You'll emulate. You definitely emulate what you see above you, especially if you're young and, and you you catch on quick. Uh, you can emulate what you see at the top, and uh, they become your role models. In fact, for and you, if you're a good crook, you become one of them. And once, once remember every every top uh, family starts off, say in the ancient times or even the Middle Ages, uh, by slaughtering the, the folk around you to take power. And then you install yourself, and after a generation, you're the good king or the good queen or the best queen or whatever. And it's the same thing with crooks like the Bronfmans who ran the, 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 the whiskey trade, you know, illicit whiskey trade all through Canada and the States during Prohibition and made millions and millions, incredible empire. And give it a generation after that, and put in the best uh, universities and the respectable. The Kennedys were the same. They were involved with the Bronfmans, in fact, in the whiskey running. And they became respectable. So it's all to do with image making, but the reality is it's all start, started by gangsterism and brutal force and slaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose the, the Rockefellers are another example of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the great philanthropists of uh, modern times. As, yeah, as they they like to see themselves. yeah, they blew up competitors as well. So they had gangs going around blowing up uh, what they called wellcats, guys who were independent. They'd blow their wells up and all the rest of it. And his idea, remember, he was part of a worldwide group in his day, Rockefeller. He was put to the States for that reason. And his family was, anyway. Uh, same, same with the Brockmans, by the way, a great history of how they came into Canada. They then sat doggo for a long time and then were activated and poof, did they take off. But um, uh, you, you find that um, standardization is a key. Uh, the key. The Rockefeller uh, is, is getting rid of all the compet- competition in oil. Said we'll get the shareholders all on board with the same one company, and that's what they called it Standard Oil to standardize prices, price fixing, everything else. And if you didn't join them, he put you under by every means possible, and he did. Great documentaries been put out in the past about them. 
And uh, even today, um, David Rockefeller is talked on the history of his family. He justifies it all, saying, well, if this guy had taken our offer, he'd have been okay, you know. Uh, so no regrets at all. It's almost like it's almost like the Godfather movie and the horse he said in the bed, isn't it? Uh, it I made him an offer I couldn't refuse. Yeah. It, it's exactly like that. Yeah. yeah. And then you got to also that you, you got the, um, the the fact that it isn't just theirs. Rockefeller got into the standardization of the American culture, and he took over the culture industry across America and helped finance it. He took over the. He created the American Medical Association, standardized up the big pharma. He, he's still got a big, big five big pharma companies worldwide, and and they run the medical association. They run the training for the doctors, what they're going to get taught, what they're going to believe, uh, right down to the same old treatment for cancers, radiation, and keep, poison chemotherapy. They've standardized everything. You know, so they don't come in and say we want to get rich. No, they came in with a mission to take everything over until they monopolize everything that you need to survive. Food, water, medicine, everything, and work itself, in fact, and government. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, that uh, the American culture, as, as you said, it was created, and that, that's the culture that now trying to spread everywhere. Uh, yeah. I think I, I don't know. Was it, was Japan one of the early experiments of that? Because they they seemed to get into all this uh, Elvis Presley stuff, and and all the teenagers started quiffing their hair and leather jackets. Fascinating story with fascinating story with Japan. Uh, and as I mentioned before, after World War II, they immediately set up, because they've been planning it, uh, to set up these cultural uh, influencers, they called them, across the, the old com- uh, warring factions, or the enemies, in fact, enemies. They, they re- completely rebuilt the whole culture for Germany, right down to you couldn't get taught history before 1945, you know. Uh, that's a big feat when you think about it. And... Um, they call it the denazification of Germany. And any old, old ideas that, that led to it had to be completely eliminated from memory. And the youth were told a whole different different story. In Japan, um, Harry Hopkins was involved along with FDR. Uh, during the war, they planned what they would, what they would do a post-war Japan. And uh, uh, they said they'd set up a, a banking system run by the U.S., but going through the government to dish out grants to the private companies that used to be part of the war machinery in, in Japan, and um, they're still going today. But, but they, they, they would completely obliterate the warrior mentality uh, of the culture itself. They, they, they'd use it as a big experimental basin, and they did. Right to the present time, they're still doing it. And they also tried to see if they could utterly destroy uh, the sexual bonding of men and women there, the sexual deviancy in Japan, what we think is deviancy, has been promoted from the top. You can go into restaurants and, and see anything you want to see and get anything you want to see. It's just incredible how they've completely destroyed a, a, a rigid, uh, strong culture uh, and given it this completely strange culture that's constantly malleable according to the direction of those who control it. Yeah, there's a, there's a great documentary on Japan called uh, Love and Hate in Japan. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's on YouTube. Um, it's, a, it's a guy there, and he's, he's living with this younger girl, and she's having to be an escort agency. They've got like two or three jobs each, you know, just to try and survive in a shoebox. And he was, a, he was quite an activist back in the 80s, I think it was, and he had like 10,000 people in the street, and they, they really clamped down with the, the kind of martial law then thing there against him. And uh, that's, that's well worth a watch, and it, it shows you where they're trying to take us. Uh, it, literally, these people were living in, in what could only be described as a cupboard. 
you know, uh, and uh, it was awful. What was the title of that one? Uh, Love and Hate in Japan. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's very kind of frank, and it, it kind of ends, ends with a happy ending. But, um, yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to see where they're taking us with this Agenda 21 rubbish, uh, here it is, you know. And, uh, of course, Japan was the first place to come out with these, well, I believe it was the first place to come out with these um, kind of um, horizontal cubicles you just crawled into and slept in overnight underground. That, that's right. Yeah. They're like beehives. And, and also, getting back to the sexual thing, too, they introduced there, first of all, uh, the, whole, the whole concept of transferring uh, your, your sexual attention to uh, very lifelike dolls, booming trade in Japan. Until, until and, and, you know, they've done documentaries on that, too. Uh, and these are very wealthy folk often. They have a room full of these life-size, very women-looking dolls. Not nice blow-up rubber things. They've been real professionally made. And, and uh, to see if they can transfer their affection onto something, which is actually inanimate, uh, and and non really non human uh, and you you project a humanness onto them a humanity onto them but uh, uh, just to see because what, what they can use in one country if, if it works they find out the technique that led to it working and then they can use it anywhere in the world that goes for all all, the, all their goals basically yeah so that's why I mean Japan is the kind of uh, seen as the home of robotics so I guess that's a it's a logical step forward for them isn't it it is yeah. to go down this way but uh, again. That's how I mean. How do you persuade somebody to have uh, affection for a machine? I suppose you know people like their cars. Well, you know they, they, they don't want to get rid of that particular car because they love it or, what, or whatever it may be, their favourite their favourite piece of jewellery or, or whatever. But inanimate objects. Uh, well, I guess I guess in these stages these things won't be inanimate, will they? But um, you know, I, I mean, how do you train the human mind to do that? It's quite simple. If, if you read. Um Charles Galton Darwin, who was a physicist in the 1950s in Britain, he, he, he put out the book, it was called uh, The Next Million Years, talking about the need for the elite to so distance themselves from the masses who would gradually die off and be controlled and so on. They'd have to do this. It was their duty to do this. And um, he said that um, the first thing is to, to break the attraction between men and women. Uh, that will depopulate naturally right, right, right away. And then, too, if there's no family structure, man, woman, children, you won't stand up and fight for them when they're being oppressed. So you'll be stuck individually with Big Brother talking down to you, just like the screen in Orwell's 84. And government would be more effective. We all say the same thing, but Charles Galton Darwin says, um, he said that uh, gradually through techniques, which they knew, because they worked with Bernays, by the way, and he knew Bernays because... uh, Charles Galton Darwin lived in Manhattan for a while. He worked on the Manhattan Project, one of the scientists there. Uh, and uh, he, he had lots of debate, works, uh, debates with these guys and, and big, big um, do's, big think tanks, how to bring the people to accept materialism and rather have materialistic things like a car instead of having a wife. Uh, and, and then how to get wives to want cars and not have, or want cars not have men. Uh, then, too, how, how they could gradually introduce through the creation of movements appearing to be social movements uh, that the, there's a lot of deviancy amongst society, which was called deviancy then, homosexuality, lesbianism, and so on, and, and then gradually get, it, it make that a normal part of society until there was no normality left for them at all. And if you get into the school system, get them trained early into this kind of thing, none of them would mate up in a natural way. And, and they wouldn't have offspring. That was the main goal of it, not to have offspring. You'd also 
uh, um, masculinize the, the, the women so that, that they wouldn't be a, uh, attractive to the men. Uh, they could be more aggressive. But he also said, so interestingly, he said, by the use of hormones, he says we can, we can alter uh, the mentality of the male. You can become more effeminate. And he says you can also make the women more aggressive. So almost a role reversal. Uh, and so he's talking about bioengineering the people. And this is in the 50s. And guarantee if, if that was being said in the 50s, the top think tanks, they were already trying it out in different areas. And he said the same thing, we're putting the food in the water, etc. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, the, the ultimate uh, result of all this uh, psychological um, stampeding, if you want to use that term, uh, is, is that the, you know, your, two, your 2.4 children family, your average family or whatever, they're, they're, all, they're all going in different directions. Uh, you know, the, the, woman's, the woman's now become the man, the man's become the woman, and the children uh, don't know who they are or, or where they're going. The, the children are, are brought up by the state. That's what the state says. They give them their new values. It's pushed to school. It's all social indoctrination. When your schools are teaching, are sexually indoctrinating them into different uh, techniques and so on of, of thinking or, or behaving, uh, went into that kind of thing. This has nothing to do with education as, you were, as it used to be. This is complete social engineering, yeah. So as I say, like your your mum and dad and the, the children are all at different points of the compass, all all going different directions, and uh, there's no cohesion whatsoever, and that's that's the ultimate goal. And, and it's worked awfully well, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, we see the results of it uh, everywhere, the family breakdown uh, and societal breakdown, of course. Um, okay, Alan, that's our that's our hour done. Uh, thanks for coming on again, and uh, I'll be on on Monday again with uh, Thomas Sheridan yep. talking about the, the music industry. I know there's a lot of people looking forward to that one. So uh, I'll look forward to that one myself. And uh, okay. I'll uh, talk to you later. Take care. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye now.